Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Stephanie Van Hladke, the Canada Research Chair on Gender, Security and the Armed Forces at Queen's University and Director of the Centre for International and Defense Policy. And I'm Steve Sademan. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. And I'm also the Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. So please join us every two weeks for a new episode. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located on unceded Algonquin territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Hey, Stephanie, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Steve. You must be very busy because you've got the Summer Institute launching on Monday. So by the time that this podcast airs on Wednesday, you'll be midweek. What do you expect for the Summer Institute? Well, that's a good question because it was originally imagined to be in person and we're doing it entirely online. So we've had to reduce the amount of sessions probably by about two thirds because the idea of having people sit in front of Zoom for nine to four is just insane. So what we're doing is we're having a morning session, uh, a small group exercise in the middle of the, uh, the day, and then an afternoon session. And the idea is to bring together the next generation of policy officers, of military officers, of academics, both to help their professional development in terms of understanding the issues facing Canadian defense and security and how we deal with those issues, and to provide some uh, networking to, to bring these people together so that way they can understand how the other parts of the community think and actually get to know some of these people in the other parts of the community. So. We put a lot of thought into this, and but this is our first time. We were supposed to do it last August, which obviously got canceled due to the pandemic. So we'll see how it goes. By the time this airs, I will either be a nervous wreck or super mm-hmm. enthused about mm-hmm. how it's been going. And probably both is the answer. I think I think we've got a great group of people, participants. We've got great presenters, although that's gotten been complicated because some of our present, presenters are media types who have to then cover the election rather than hang out with us. So we're, we're scrambling a little bit. But I'm excited about it. I think this is one of the ideas that we had going into creating the CDSN. And it's the first time we have a chance to realize it. Everything else we've done that, that was in the grant, that the ideas we've been able to do at some stage, this is the one thing we really haven't had a chance to do before. So it's exciting, but a little nerve wracking because we haven't done it and it's entirely online. But uh, we'll be issuing reports afterwards about it. And uh, we'll certainly maybe bring on some of the participants in the podcast afterwards to find out what they, what they got out of it. But I, I do think this is one of the major ways that we're trying to the, create, a, create a sense of community yeah. in the Canadian defense and security community. So tell me, how do you do virtual networking? Do you have any special programs mm-hmm. or activities prepared for the participants? I, I know this is hard for many folks organizing events online is to try to um, sure. get that network component into the design of workshops, conferences, and in your case, an institute. Sure. Well, we're trying two things. We'll see how they work. Uh, The first is every day there'll be a small group exercise. So we're going to create these small groups that will include members from each of the different groups and try to have each each of these small groups be diverse across all kinds of things, whether it's gender, 
ethnic background, where they are in the government, their interests. But that group will stay, each group will stay the same over the course of the week. So that at least those four or five people will get to know each other. And each day I'm giving, or we're giving them a different exercise. And they're sort of out of the box, not the kinds of things they do in their day job. So for instance, write the party defense platform for a random party that we give, we give each group. Come up with a D&D CAF public outreach strategy. One of our sessions deals with all these personnel issues. So we're going to ask them to come up with, you know, each group will focus on a different historically excluded group and say, okay, what are some ideas for how to include that group in, you know, feel, make that group feel more included and safer within the CAF. So those are three examples of, of those kinds. Oh, and the, the fourth one is for us academics, you know, we'll have each group come up with three priorities that D&D slash shirk slash mind slash ideas should fund. What kind of research should be funded? Mm, yeah. So it'll get each of the groups a little bit out of their comfort zone. We'll have each of them put together a set of slides to post on our Summer Institute Slack. So that way everybody else can look at what, what's been produced and they can talk about it in between sessions. So I think that's the one of the ways we're doing networking. The second is we're having two happy hours. And obviously we can't, I'm not going to bring people together to drink this time around, particularly since the online endeavor has meant that we actually have participants from farther afield than Canada. But what the, we, what we'll do is we'll have bringing people into different groups, not the small group shared groupness, but completely different groups, so that people get to meet other people in the cohort. And the first day, the the Wednesday halfway through, one of my new colleagues, Lemma Morand, gave me a really good idea about a particular game they have to play with each other online that interacts well with the Zoom that involves geography, and that should get them working together but also in competition in ways that should be fun and interesting. It's just as an icebreaker for like five or 10 minutes. And then they'll have another, you know, half hour, 45 minutes to hang out with each other and talk about whatever they want to talk about. And then the Friday session, I haven't figured it out yet. Mm -hmm. And that part of that's going to be based on chemistry and ideas. I might ask, you know, I'll, I'll actually ask them for ideas to see what they, what they have to say. And, and uh, we'll figure that one out before Friday, hopefully. So that, okay. that's, that, that's where we're at on that. That's neat. I'm taking notes. Uh, <laughs> I think we're going to have a, a few more online events in the fall before we really transition back to the in-person game. But it's good to see that the, the Summer Institute is, is kicking off for its first edition. And for anyone interested, I suppose, in the CDSN Summer Institute, we can say now that it's an annual week-long yes course, especially for, for young professionals, both academics and practitioners, and it's focused on Canadian security and defense. You are a great salesperson. <laughs> well, I look forward to participating myself. I know it won't be this year because uh, I'm, I'm heading off on uh, another short vacation, but uh, I certainly will be looking forward to your hot takes on how it all went. And speaking of hot takes, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you have been giving your hot takes on Afghanistan in the news. And so because there's been a lot of Twitter conversations about who should be talking about this and who should be ste stepping aside in terms of giving hot takes. I thought I would ask you for what you think about this whole Twitter exchange, but more broadly, also what you've been sharing in terms of your thoughts in the media. I think the challenge here is that it's a dynamic set of events. And one of the temptations for the journalists is to ask us questions that are completely unanswerable, like what's going on at the airfield? What are the people in the embassy thinking? And when I get those questions, I'm like, I, I don't know. I don't think anybody can know. But there's a question about whether we should have Afghan voices, more Afghan voices on TV and radio in, in the media in Canada. The answer is yes. And so, for instance, I'm going to be doing a TV spot today, a longer program. And so I asked them, 
about if they could identify someone from from the Afghan community who could do that. And they said, we already have got, we already got it. So I wasn't taking somebody else's place. For a lot of the media hits, what the, what the media is looking for is not Afghan perspectives. They're looking for background. They're looking for why we got there, what went wrong, what are the international actors doing? And so when, when people ask me about Afghan domestic politics, about you know what is the Taliban thinking? What is the Taliban going to become? I'm like, you shouldn't be talking to me. You should be talking to somebody who's an expert on Islamic politics, you know, on, on, on the Taliban, on Afghanistan. But if you're asking about what did NATO do? Why did NATO do it? Why did what did Canada do? What did what 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 is America? What are the Americans up to? And why do they do what they do? I think I've got I've got some expertise in that. So I try to talk about that mostly. One of the challenges of all media when it's live is the anchors may sometimes have given and received a script, and sometimes I will have received that script, but that script never ties their hands, and so they almost always go off script at some point, and I never know where that's going to be. And some, so they will then sometimes ask questions that would be better to be answered by an Afghan woman or an, uh, any Afghan about it. As the week went along and as I was getting more and more opportunities, I was trying to direct them a little bit more to whoever they were really needed to talk to. But I do think even though I haven't been doing research in Afghanistan for a few years, and I haven't been found as close as, as, as some other people, given the work that I put in, given the, uh, the people I've, I, I did talk to from 2007 to 2015, 2016, I, I have uh, a decent enough background that I can speak to these broader issues. And one of the challenges is, and what the, the real Twitter criticism is, the, and you see it for every, every news story that comes out, oh, well, suddenly, suddenly everybody's an expert on Mali. Oh, well, suddenly everybody's an expert on, on Yemen or whatever. And and so people are speaking about places they don't know anything about. And it's not that I know everything about Afghanistan, but I think I do know a little bit more about, about the mission than a lot of other people who might the media might reach out to. So I'd rather speak than know, I'd rather have myself speak on that stuff than people who don't know anything about Afghanistan. So I, I think I think I've got some a useful perspective to give. I've been blogging a lot about it lately, and I've been finding that my friends and family and others have misperceptions or they don't understand some of these things that I thought everybody knew. Like my wife asked wait, Pakistan was doing what? I'm like, yeah, Pakistan was doing this. And she's like, oh no. I'm like, oh yes. So I think that the challenge is that the media attention to Afghanistan has been very episodic over the years. And so it's been literally 10 years since uh, Canada wasn't a combat mission in Afghanistan. They were there for a few more years as a training mission, but we haven't been there for a long time. And so the media hasn't really been covering it very much. So the public awareness of a lot of the basics is not great. And so I, I, I try to do as much as I can just to demythify the mission. And so that's what I've been doing. In terms of your perspective, because you've written on NATO and you're an alert international relations person, <laughs> what have you been thinking about what you've been seeing and, and the government's response, either the American government's response, since you've written about U.S. foreign policy or about the Canadian response to this the events of the past week? Yeah, and, and a lot's happened in the past week. I mean, last time we recorded the Taliban's takeover of the country was still projected to be months out. And now the evacuation of, of Afghans is continuing, but there is a very different sense of urgency given that uh, the, the Taliban have really taken control over, over the country. So yeah, it, I, I've been interested in how alliance relationships remain very relevant in this context, especially as I look at the evacuation strategies of different countries and how, of course, dependence on the U.S. presence continues. So now the, the U.S. has a military presence of, of over 5,000 troops to protect the airport. Of course, the Taliban now is in a position to curtail access to the airport. But we know, let's say as Canadians, that our efforts are really dependent on the U.S. being there and providing that security cover. So 
we can anticipate that the U.S. will continue its evacuation efforts in the in the coming weeks. Will it be beyond their officially stated withdrawal deadline of August 31st? Perhaps it might be necessary. But what's clear is that is that Canada and other allies cannot really continue on with their evacuation flight unless that presence is there. So that's one thing that strikes me mm-hmm. about this particular period is that those alliance dynamics are replicated you know, on a smaller scale for, sure. for the evacuation. It's also nice to have allies in this context because the evacuation efforts are quite chaotic. And we've seen some some pretty crazy pictures uh, of, of planes taking off with people trying to hold on. And that's led to casualties. And I can just imagine the disarray of folks uh, showing up at the airport and trying to get onto planes and not having necessarily the proper paperwork or identification documents with them. So when you have this amount of, of chaos on the ground, it's useful to be able to rely on allied effort because then it starts to matter less who is on which plane, which can help avoid delays in processing folks, Mm -hmm. and then sorting it out with other countries like the US, UK, Spain, Italy, Australia, you know, some of the other countries who are are there going through these, uh, these evacuation missions. So that's what I've been thinking about is how all of these alliance dynamics uh, are, are continuing to be relevant in this context, and how ultimately efforts like Canada's really depend on the U.S.'s stance and their ability and willingness to continue to provide that security cover for those flights to take off. Yes, by the time this airs, since we're taking this a little earlier than usual, we don't know what the situations could be a few days from now. But yeah, one of the interesting things about this is that the Taliban are tolerating, yes, there are five or 6,000 American troops on, or on the airport, but they can defend the airport. They can't stop all shelling or missile fire or whatever, that would make it very difficult for planes to land to take off. The, the Taliban are letting some people through to the airport. Now, they're being very selective, and that's a, as a challenge. And there was a story today about how the French and the British might actually be using their special forces to get people out uh, without having to go through the that cordon. But this is a really interesting dynamic, and I don't really understand what the Taliban is doing right now. And the media keeps on asking me, is this a different Taliban? I'm like, I have no idea. But it's... It's a really interesting dynamic. The other thing I'd say is we look at this past week as another mess, but would we, we be happier if the Afghan National Army fought street to street battle with the Taliban in every major city that leveled every major city and caused far more casualties than what has happened in the past month? Mm-hmm. Yes, it puts the, our friends at risk this way, and we might have had a better chance to get these people out had there been what was expected, but this might not be the worst outcome what we're seeing right now. The worst outcome would have been you know, what we've seen, we saw in Afghanistan in the 1990s, what we saw the Russians do to Chechnya, you know, where, where basically every urban area looks like Stalingrad during the middle of World War II. And I just, I just don't know how to think about some of the stuff right now, because we don't know what the other pathways would have looked like. And it's easy to say, well, this thing's a mess, but it might not be the worst possible outcome. And that's one of the things I've been thinking about lately is what could have, could have happened otherwise, because we're mm-hmm. asking ourselves, well, what would have happened had Joe Biden reneged on, on Donald Trump's agreement? And we got to remember the Taliban have agency. If the U.S. decided to stay and keep 2,500 troops in Afghanistan forever, that might have been the U.S. stance, but that wouldn't have been something the Taliban would have not reacted to. And so the deal that Trump made was something that Made, was made uh, based on the declining situation. The, the Taliban didn't just suddenly become strong. They were getting stronger over the past five years. But the real turning point was the Doha agreement, which basically told everybody the United States is leaving soon. And the United States did do things like yank out 
its air support and its contractors. Rory Stewart, a Brit who's walked literally from one end of Afghanistan to the other, had a statement that was circulated on Twitter this morning about that. And I think one of the big things we, the United States pulled its, you know, its, its assets out of Bagram Airfield overnight without telling anybody about it. And, and so that meant that the Afghan Air Force couldn't fly anymore because they were dependent upon uh, American civilian contractors to keep the aircraft uh, going. It wasn't just the loss of Americans flying planes. It was also a loss of uh, the ability for Afghans to fly. And so once you do those kinds of things, that helps to the cascade to accelerate. I, I do understand what Biden is doing right now. I mean, the reports today have been out of the administration that they understand that this has not gone well, but they also understand the American people ultimately won't care about this, that there's not what they're going to vote on in the midterm elections. They, he may, they may be wrong about this because there's actually some Democrats who are going to be pushing for investigations in Congress, but the American people are not going to, you know, they're, they're dueling polls in the United States where, they, where the results say the Americans want to go back in and fight the Taliban, but the Americans also support withdrawal. I mean, the numbers are over 50% for both of those things. And so it's really contradictory, but I'm pretty sure the, the 70% of Americans who want to be out of Afghanistan is, is the longer, more enduring preference. And I think that's what Biden's paying attention to. And you mentioned Doha. So do you think countries like the U.S. and its allies and partners have more leverage now than they did trying to negotiate the withdrawal in Doha? I think there's obviously a lot of financial aid at stake, but the Taliban are unlikely to access developmental assistance if they engage in brutal repression. And we're seeing countries and organizations setting specific conditions for the Taliban to access these types of funds. And of course, there's this whole conversation over diplomatic recognition and mm -hmm. in Canada uh, sort of already signaling that the, it has no plans to recognize the Taliban government in Afghanistan. So what is your take now on how the leverage is changing between, let's say, the Taliban now who are taking yeah. control of the country and the U.S. and other countries who've been involved in Afghanistan over the past two decades? That's a really interesting question. I would say that the real interesting leverage thing is that Pakistan has now lost all of its leverage over the United States because Pakistan was seen as an important line of communications, locks is what they call them in, uh, amongst uh, military types. And as long as the United States and its allies needed to ship things through Pakistan, Pakistan had a lot of leverage over the United States and its allies. And they, they use that. They occasionally would shut that channel off if they were upset, like right after, I think, the, Obama, the, the Osama bin Laden uh, Thing, or it might have been a few years a little later than that. But I do remember American, Canadian equipment on its way out was stuck at the border for quite some time because the Pakistanis had turned it off. Well, Pakistan has no leverage over the United States anymore because the United States doesn't need it in the same way it did for the past 20 years. So people look back to 1999, 2000, relations with the United States and Pakistan were very, very hostile because Pakistan had violated you know, nuclear proliferation agreements. The United States didn't really need it. And so the United States was, was sanctioning Pakistan. And that all ended right after 9-11 as, as the United States needed Pakistan to, to pursue that war effort for overflights as well as for passage of stuff through the country. That's gone now. And so... I think, and the, the Pakistanis maybe, you know, I saw a really good thread today about how there's this opportunity, but there's also this threat that, wow, this is great. We no longer have a pro-Indian government in, in Afghanistan. Oh, but wait, the Taliban are also pretty hostile to our government, despite our own Islamist approach to things. So uh, I think Pakistan is actually worse off now than it was a month ago, which I don't think many people would have expected. Uh, in terms of the Taliban needing money from outside, these are, you know, in the last round, and I, I think it'd probably be true in this round, development is not what they care about. They were never focused on developing the Afghan economy. They focused on uh, theocracy and brutal justice. And you don't need money for that too much. Now, they may find themselves having a harder time fighting 
other folks because now they're the they're the ones who are responsible for everything. But and and it may be that they can't control the entire country. But I'm not so sure they're that desperate for international approval and connections to to money. They'll still have opium that they've been making money off of for years, and I don't see that going away. And the Chinese and the Pakistanis and the Russians are willing to play along with them. And so why do they need anybody else? Well, let's move closer, closer to home. One of the things that was going on in the past week when the media was calling me about this stuff, I was like, I'd rather much talk about the abuse of power problem back home and the sexual misconduct problem. Uh, and in my blog post where I talked about my doing Afghanistan media, I, I made a clear different distinction between I, when the media was covering these stories, when they're talking about sexual misconduct, I referred them to all the experts in Canada who do you know, been studying personnel issues like yourself, my Eichler, Megan McKenzie, or Charlotte Duvall, and and others who who do that work. But when they were asking about Canadian civil relations, I was more than happy to jump up and say, "Oh, I'll talk about that." And what's interesting is there's two things going on here. And one is that this has become an election issue. The one thing that's in all the defense platforms of the of the competing parties that have them, that is the NDP and the conservatives, is they promise to do more. They promise to create independent checks on, on the military, whether that's independent ombudsman or something more vague about how putting things outside the military. And the other thing that's going on is that you went to a consultation uh, with the people who are doing standing up the new professional conduct and culture command. So how'd that go? I really appreciate these these opportunities to to engage with folks at DNZCAF who are working on this this problem right now. There are more of them than there used to be. So I think back to six years ago in the lead up to the Deshaun report and following the release of the Deshaun report, there were similar consultations, just not as many. And this time around, I'm feeling more transparency and candor as these roundtables are taking place. So I I, I do appreciate that opportunity. I also you know, wanted to register some concerns that, that I'm having. And so, you know, when you, you were talking about the media hits and when you do media commentary, I wrote an op-ed. I've been vocal on this issue over the past few months. That means that then people reach out to you, whether you know them or not. <laughs> uh, by no, and, and that's perfectly fine by email. I'm really happy to, to hear from people and their stories. But I'm, I'm a little worried uh, about people's well-being because the signals that you're getting from senior military leadership is that it's, you know, going to be a safer environment to report. And I think that the past few months and, and all the allegations that have been made public are certainly emboldening people to work up the courage to report because it's not an easy thing to do. But at the same time, the system hasn't changed that much since these allegations came out. And so I think people's experience with reporting, or at least that's what I'm, I'm hearing from people who are sharing their stories with me, is that they're still feeling a, a climate of professional and social reprisal when they report, and that it's not a more welcoming environment to report, and that leaders aren't not necessarily receiving the appropriate guidance when it comes to supporting their teams when reports are being made and, and providing that kind of empathetic leadership through a very difficult moment for the entire organization, especially those who've, uh, who've suffered incidents of toxic leadership, uh, racism, sexual misconduct. We can use a, a broader definition of, of, of misconduct here. So mm. those are my concerns is that you know, you're getting signals from higher echelons of leadership saying, you know, the CAF is changing, we're doing all these great things, 
we're consulting, we're going to take a victim-centered approach. But at, in the short term, I don't think that those individuals are any safer to, to report than they were six months ago. And so what can be done in the very short term to check in with those mm -hmm. doing the reporting? I know there's the SMRC for sexual misconduct, but you know, there, there are other instances of, of, of abuse that we should be really tracking more closely. So those are the, the concerns I wanted to, to register. And I mm -hmm. think when it comes to organizations like the organization set up by the chief uh, professional conduct and culture, it does take time to set these organizations up. They have to build a team. They have to identify the priorities. They have to be responsive to a process that's going on in parallel through the Arbor review. But I don't think you can just wait six months, 12 months before enacting some of these measures, even if they're likely to change with some of the recommendations that Arbor will make. So that's my my immediate concern. So if, if you know someone who's mm. thinking about reporting or who, who has reported, please think about checking in with them, mm. providing, offering that support, because there's been a long culture of, of silence and, you know, probably skewed understanding of what loyalty means in this military culture. And right now, the people who have the courage to speak out need some some support. Uh, well, and that will come from their peers and their leaders. Well, that's really helpful. And I'm really glad you said that. We're running out of time here. So uh, the, the one comment I want to make in all of this is that it was really striking that the government responded to Donald's desire, Admiral McDonald, the chief defense staff in waiting, since he did not get indicted, he wants his job back. And the government responded not by telling him that he can't, but by promoting Lieutenant General Air to, to general, which means he now has four leaves on his shoulder. And there's only two jobs that Canadian generals had with four leaves on their shoulder. They either the chief of defense staff or they go off to NATO to be the chairman of the military committee. And that's it. And since since Air is not going off to NATO, that that's very suggestive. But the government didn't make the any any firm decision on McDonald before the election started. And I guess they can't until the election ends. So McDonald gets to live in limbo for another 30 days or so. But that's his problem because he should really choose mission before self and understand that he can't really be the chief of defense and just get out of the way. That's that's my naked uh, opinion on that. I'm not going to ask you to comment on that because we don't have any time. But I do want to ask you <laughs> about Wycross's interview. You you talked to retired Lieutenant General Christina Wycross about about her experiences and her views, and, and I'm curious about what your short summary of that is before we launch into that. Well, I, I really enjoyed that conversation. General Whitecross was commandant of the NATO Defense College before uh, retiring, and it's good to be able to check in with her a few months after that transition. So she, she spoke to me about, about the transition, which is quite significant after such a long military career. And she spoke to me about current sexual misconduct crisis, because of course, she was in the media six years ago after the release of the Deschamps report on Howard Politics and other outlets talking as a CAF spokesperson about the changes that the military needed to make. So I asked her to reflect back on that and to offer some updated thoughts as well on where the CAF should go. It was a very good discussion. And I'm grateful that we had her on as a guest. I found the conversation very interesting. I was going through it this morning for, for editing purposes, and I, I thought it was a terrific conversation. So I'm glad you had the chance to talk to her about it. Sounds good. Talk to you soon, Steve. Take care. Take care.
As mentioned during our opening segment, our feature interview today is with Lieutenant General Christine Whitecross, who retired from the Canadian Armed Forces in 2020. Prior to retirement, she was the Commandant of the NATO Defence College in Rome, Italy. And before that, she was the Commander of the Canadian Forces Strategic Response Team on Sexual Misconduct. In retirement, she is active as a coach and mentor, for example, as the first senior mentor for the Athena Network of the Royal Military College of Canada. Chris, it's good to be reconnecting with you and welcome to Battle Rhythm. It's a pleasure to be here. You are experiencing your very first year of retirement and I have to ask, how are you settling into this relatively new Battle Rhythm? Actually kind of interesting. I'm enjoying retirement for the first part. It wasn't so much a secret or a surprise for me to retire. I mean, I had done over 38 years of service and it really was time. So I think I was mentally prepared, but I don't think anybody is truly prepared for retirement. So it still surprises me sometimes when I wake up in the morning, I don't have anywhere to go and I don't have to iron my uniforms. But other than that, you know, it's not surprising that the discipline that I've done for over 38 years is still instilled in me. It's kind of in my DNA now. I get up early. I still work out. I schedule meetings. I schedule time to work on different things. But now I have more time to be doing things that I enjoy. And that includes, you know, spending time with family, doing things like gardening and landscaping that I haven't been able to do in years. So uh, really, really, actually, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about it. That's good to hear. I I understand the transition can be challenging for for some. So would you have any advice for CAF service members who are planning or maybe thinking about their transition from military to civilian life? Transition can be a fairly significant emotional event for many. Even, you know, I have to admit when I gave my ID card away, I was by myself. It was during the pandemic. So I didn't have any sort of support there. Not that I thought at the moment that I had needed it. You know, when I did finally give my ID card away, I realized that I really could have used some type of support, whether it was my husband or friends or colleagues sort of gathering around me. I was surprised at how much that sort of impacted or made me feel how that made me feel. It made me feel kind of sad, to be honest. So I think we underestimate the emotional event called retirement or releasing from the military, even if you had planned it yourself. So imagine if you had not planned it, and it wasn't something that you really wanted to do, but you really had no choice for whatever reason, uh, medical or, or otherwise family reasons, for example. So my recommendation is you need to be mentally and physically prepared to retire, you need to have a support network around you, you need to have people that you can talk to, like you need to prepare yourself the months before retirement. So where are you going to live? What job or, or lack of job are you looking for? What are, you know, what are other things that interest you besides work? Where's your family? Where's your social network? Uh, and all those kind of things. So I think you need to do a lot of preparation beforehand. Uh, and then you need to be prepared for that moment when you're no longer, you know, a part of this institution we call the Canadian Armed Forces. It's, it, it is significant. And I, I think we underestimate how much that can impact you. So, you know, I really encourage people to talk about it well beforehand with your family and your friends, you know, try to figure out what you want to do, where you want to go, and take your time in, in discussing those and in coming up to your final answers, because, you know, you really need to, to look at your own personal needs and those needs of your family before you make, you know, what could be life-changing decisions uh, moving forward. So I guess, you know, in a nutshell, those would be my recommendations. 
That's helpful. Thank you very much for that. And let's go back in time a little bit pre-retirement, as I would uh, really like to talk about your last position as commandant of the NATO Defense College in Rome. The college is in Italy, a beautiful location, but of course your time there was impacted by the pandemic. Generally though, can you tell us about what the role entailed on a day-to-day basis, both pre and during the pandemic? Well, before the pandemic, it was um, as commandant of an educational institute, professional military education. I mean, we our primary objective was to provide education to NATO and partner members. So impacting 30 NATO nations plus, you know, up to 40 partner nations. And as as countries want to become a part of this NATO enterprise, whether it's as a NATO nation or as a partner nation, one of the main or engagement strategies is, is to talk about education. And because that is something that we have at the core of our military institution is this thing called professional military education. And then to invite these nations to participate in our different level of courses that are provided at the NATO Defense College in Rome. So on our average day, I mean, before it, you know, it's really about meeting all of the instructors that are coming in, the professors, the academics, the practitioners, the military and civil leaders that come in and do lectures. Uh, And then it's the entire lecture series and then understanding sort of really having fundamental discussions about what, what was said and what was not said, which I think is just as important. And then sort of coming out with some ideas on how does that impact the relationship within NATO, between NATO nations, between NATO non-nations, and the strategies that that NATO is uh, postulating, you know, that sort of thing. So it was really about spending time thinking and engaging and then trying to get people to really dig deep and to understand the strategies and the impacts that NATO has on itself and its its neighbors. So, I mean, in terms of battle rhythm, it was, you know, in, in many ways, it it was the same every day, but in many ways it was different because the topics always changed and the people that you engaged with always changed. I mean, the nice thing about the NATO Defense College is it didn't have any tenured professors. We didn't have any resources within the college for the all of the lecture series. We brought them in from all over the world. You know, one day you could have somebody from Canada uh, and the next day you'll have somebody from Estonia. Or, or Japan, or, or even Russia or China uh, coming in and talking about things um, that are of pertinent interest to NATO and its allies. So in, in terms of that, I mean, it was just, it, it was professionally stimulating uh, at its core. And, you know, so besides the, the entire education system, we had a research branch that did a lot of research for NATO and NATO nations. And we were really lucky. We had a Canadian on staff there once a year through the Mines program, and they were providing some research that was of interest particular interest to Canada and NATO and then but you'd have people from other countries as well so you get a really great perspective on sort of what's going on I think that the last thing I'd like to mention is there's there was a real push to understand sort of the Middle East region so they have this thing called the NRCC the NATO Regional Cooperation Course which really looked at NATO and its relationship with Middle East countries and it was unique in its development and now I think with uh, the inclusion of many of these nations in the senior course in, you know, in their flagship course, I think it really brings some needed and necessary uh, discord and, and engagement and discussion about issues that are pertinent to all nations today. So, I mean, in terms of battle rhythm, it was, you know, you could say same every day, but 
different in terms of context and engagement. And Chris, you've been a vocal advocate for women's leadership in the military. I checked and the representation of women at the NATO Defense College was and still is very low, a situation I'm sure you've encountered before. But did this impact the kind of work that you did? Or at the very least, did the fact that you were a woman in the role make a difference? You know, I don't, I sit back having left there last year and I wonder if I made an impact on the gender issue. Now, I like to think I made an impact in other areas, but you know, what's interesting is when I did that, the changeover with the previous commandant, we had a, we had a dinner and I was speaking to some of the, you know, people that represented the different nations at the dinner. And, you know, and I asked them, how come you don't have more instructors? Why don't you have staff at the college from your senior women cadre? And, and I got a whole slew of answers, and I would say almost excuses. But the bottom line is, um, many of them just aren't at the same space of, say, Canada, US, you know, and, and some other nations. So when when I asked the question, at first, I could sense that they were wondering why this was even important. And the more I got involved with the college, and the more engagement we had with CHODs and that, and the more requests for more diversity, in the in the staff, you know, we did manage to get uh, anywhere between you know ten to fifteen, and sometimes twenty percent of the staff were women, and you know, and they were coming from places like Canada and Greece and Turkey. Norway in the Netherlands. So that was good. Will it be instilled? I have, I really don't know. I'd like to think that things are changing, uh, albeit slowly for many nations. But sometimes I think you, you really need to make a conscious decision to do it in, and not just rely on who's next who's next on in the queue in order to go to these whatever postings they are. I think you need to really fundamentally change how you how you choose people and think just kind of outside the box on, you know, what is it our country wants to, like, how do we want to showcase our country and sort of the people that are in it. So it, it was difficult, you know, and I was the first commandant to identify a gender advisor in the college. And uh, I made that fairly early on in my tenure. And the reason I did it was I wanted to talk about it. I wanted to talk about gender issues. And, and I can tell you, it was not well received in all areas. You know, mm -hmm. some people, some nations were okay with it, but you know, many were not. And so I go back to the, do they necessarily think it's important? Like, I think they think it's, it's important for certain reasons, but yeah, you know, I, sometimes I just wonder, I just wonder, and I don't really have the answer to that, but I just think it's important that we continue on and we never let this, let this discussion fade and we just keep going on and on and on. Well, it's certainly not fading in Canada at the moment. So let's talk a little bit about how things are back home. As a retired three-star, you've commented on the unfolding sexual misconduct crisis in the CAF. You've been quoted as saying that this is a watershed opportunity. Why is this time different? Well, it's not different. So this time is not different, but the outcome can be different. Where women, visible minorities, just different cultural groups have suffered through years uh, of military service. I mean, there's no question about that. So that hasn't changed. What's changed is, you know, we thought we had a watershed moment in the mid 90s, we thought we had it in 2014. And now here we are in 2020, 2021, and realizing we did not get it right. We have not put enough effort, time and thought to how to eradicate uh, this insidious behavior. And so my hope, my optimism is that this has to be a watershed moment because we need to change. And if we don't change, shame on us. 
And, and I use the word us and we because I still feel fundamentally a part of the institution, uh, even as a retired member, and believe in it. And I believe that the current leadership is very well seized with it and, and believes in it too. And so I think that's why I said it's an opportunity. And it's an opportunity that cannot be lost. Uh, and it is a watershed opportunity. And I think a lot of the work that's being done by the acting CDS and the DM is showcasing that. You know, there's tremendous, well, I shouldn't use the word tremendous, but there is a lot of effort and a lot of discussion and a lot of change happening that hadn't happened in the past. And I am optimistic uh, and hopeful. Okay, let's unpack that a little bit. When you look at the last six years, do you ever think about what the CAV could have done differently after the tabling of the Deschamps report? What went well and what didn't go so well? And I recall seeing you in the media quite often during that time, shaping the discussion from a CAF perspective. You know, I think in hindsight, I, Chris Whitecross, could probably have been or should probably have been a lot more aggressive in shaping the discussion and in shaping the dialogue and not, in, again, this is in hindsight, and not being completely or unconsciously concerned about the words that I was using. And that's a difficult aspect to me to admit to now. And, and I really think that had I been, not just me, but many others, had had we been a lot more vocal and less, not, the word isn't forgiving, but less accommodating, I think perhaps we could have made bigger change. And, you know, and I, I don't fault anybody from that era back in 2015, when I headed the uh, sexual misconduct response team. I say it because at the time, I think we were, you know, as military members, we were concerned about who we are and, and what we were and, and our legacy to the Canadian Armed Forces is a, is a tough one. But, and, you know, I honestly believe that many didn't think it was such a big problem back then. And I wish I had been more vocal about that. I remember when the CDS at the time brought all of the senior leaders to Ottawa, and my job was to make it real. And I had done a lot of engagements across the country, and I had gotten a lot of stories and anecdotes and disclosures from men and women across the country. And in order to make it real, I wanted to tell their stories. And it was one of the most emotional moments of my military career. I mean, I'm just getting kind of tongue-tied thinking about it. And I had 22 stories I wanted to share. And I didn't, of course, not names or locations, but I wanted them to understand what I had heard. And I would say in the room, you couldn't, you could have heard a, a pin drop. And I would say I probably, a third of the people probably already realized it was a problem. And I think maybe I turned maybe another third uh, during that time, but, but I still maintain after leaving that room that there was still a group of people who didn't think it was the problem was as big as we were making it out to be or as influential or as impactful as it, we were making it out to be. And I, and I just wish I could have done more to make that happen, to make it, I don't know, more real maybe for people and, and make them understand more. Yeah, it was tough. I don't know if I answered your question. It's very powerful, Chris, and, and I think underscores the importance of, of empathy and of ownership. I'm encouraged to hear those words mentioned and written about in the various statements we're seeing from the acting chief of defense staff or from the deputy minister. And I think that 
what you've just shared now really highlights this because at the end of the day, it's, it's about people. And if that aspect of the current culture crisis is not made visible, then I think that we might be making the same mistakes over and over again. So thank you for the role you played then. And I know that you continue to play a role uh, in the ongoing discussions. It's probably too soon, though, to tell whether or not the ongoing crisis will have a significant impact in other areas. I'm thinking recruitment and retention trends uh, as well. And I know for a fact that COVID is another important factor which continues to, to impact recruitment. But what would you say to women and men, but perhaps women especially, who are considering a career in the CAF right now, but who might be put off by the headlines that they're reading? Well, it's still a great career. I mean, I maintain it is a great career and things are changing and things are developing. So it's important for us to sort of, to flag that there are issues, but the issues are being addressed or we're trying to address the issues and that it is still a great career. But I just want to go back to something that you just said. And that's, I think it is fundamentally important that the leadership of the Canadian Armed Forces and, you know, certainly of all militaries that we understand that being a, a true solid leader means that you need to be caring and you need to be compassionate and you need to be strong. And those don't have to be mutually exclusive, but you need to have those soft skills that people can see and that those soft skills are not incongruent to having a warrior mentality or a warrior to being a warrior. And we need to be able to to characterize that better, I think, within the Canadian Armed Forces, being humble about whether or not you're, you know, the boss or regardless of where you are on the chain, I think speaks spades about, uh, about your leadership qualities, knowing that you're not necessarily the smartest person in the room or that you have all the answers and that your team that surrounds you are the ones that are going to help you develop the best courses of action, the, the best solutions and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that fundamentally is what makes us a great institution and it what makes us great warfighters. And I think people, they divide those apart and you can't. I mean, anyways, that's my own personal opinion. And, and you've had opportunities to talk about leadership because I know that you've dedicated some time to mentorship and coaching. Uh, certainly I've followed your engagement with the Athena Network, but perhaps you can speak to that role that you've taken on as a mentor and as a coach and what that means for leadership development. I'm absolutely delighted that the uh, Royal Military College asked me to be a mentor. At, at first, they, they asked me to just to be a mentor, like, because they do have the, uh, the Athena Network and they have people paired up between officer and naval cadets and uh, currently serving and probably retired members. But then they decided uh, that they would create this senior mentor post that would allow me to engage all of the officer and naval cadets to have, you know, at some point a virtual office hours where people can, you know, we can just chat about things that are important to them. And I've done some panels and I've done some group sessions and I'm absolutely ecstatic at the questions and the engagement and the level of concern that the naval and officer cadets have on what's happening in the Canadian Armed Forces. I mean, they obviously want to talk about things like their experience as a junior officer and all that kind of stuff, but they also want to talk about how is how is what's happening now going to affect their careers and how is it going to affect how they can lead and how is it going to affect who they are and I you know and I've told them on on a couple of occasions that you need to take the opportunity to go into your first postings 
and understand how you feel today and not be allowed to change your perspective or change your value system, depending on where you're working and who you're working with. You need to create that environment of a generation moving forward that maintains their you know, how they believe in and what they value today. And, and I encouraged all of them to talk about it and to, and to really take a, take a moment every day or, you know, every week to do a, a introspection on, on what have they accomplished and how does that, you know, how is that forming them as a leader and, and are they proud of it? So having the opportunity to talk to them, I think is to me, it's like, I hope I'm providing value added, but I am really impressed and very encouraged by the discussions that we've had in the last number of months. Mm, and it must be nice to engage in those discussions with the freedom that comes from no longer speaking about these topics in, in uniform. You know, there is a tremendous amount of, you know, you, you talk about freedom and, and I didn't realize when I was serving how personally constrained I made myself when discussing whether it's experiences or or topics of leadership or this the you know the sexual misconduct situations that we're in you know all that kind of stuff i i hadn't realized how limited i now see i was in terms of being very honest and open uh, about what i wanted to say now in many ways i was honest and open because i didn't feel constrained but in some ways i was and i'm glad that i am not now but i'm hoping that this is something that currently serving members can acknowledge and can reduce in terms of limitations moving forward like i really hope so and because that's how we make change i agree this is a very important uh, leadership lesson in this moment uh, and i hope it resonates so you're you're retired but you're still very busy from what i gather and i'll ask you one last question uh, it's a lighter question but looking back on your career as a whole what was your career highlight holy cow my career <laughs> highlight you know i have so many highlights i i think just holy cow uh, like i don't have just one i think just the opportunities that the Canadian military has given me to command at every level and just allowed me to be as much as I wanted to be because they gave me the opportunities to learn and to develop and they didn't constrain them by my gender or my occupation. I mean, I, I was an engineer and, and, and so in many ways you, to be a formation commander or uh, even commanding CMP or helping the operational support command, you know, that kind of stuff. You, you kind of wonder, you know, in many ways, commanding different areas wouldn't be necessarily support folks, right? So, uh, and then obviously, and I was a woman too. So I got to do a lot of things for the first time as a woman, though that's not exactly what I want to be known for. I want to be known for, you know, somebody who cared, uh, somebody who in every job that I ever had put my all and made it, you know, even if it was great, I think our job as leaders is to make whatever post that you're in, whatever appointment you're in to make it even better every single time. And every single leader should do that. And you shouldn't, you shouldn't be limited by the, you know, the opportunities. I mean, they're, they abound, right? Uh, no matter where you are. So mm -hmm. even good organizations can get better. And I'm, I'm hoping that people remember me for that. So in terms of a gleaming highlight, it's, I don't have just one representing Canada uh, internationally has been a highlight deploying, you know, even though deploying to Afghanistan and Bosnia have been were difficult, they were certainly a highlight, because every single one of these things gave me a different perspective and, and different competencies and skills that I would never have had if I hadn't had the opportunity. And you know, what, 
working with our Indigenous people in, in the Arctic. That was a huge highlight in that, you know, it was completely out of my comfort zone. And but learning about what our Canadian Rangers did and about the Arctic in and of itself, I mean, and its strategic importance, all of this helped frame me and allowed me to further develop and professionalize my own skills. So you know, I can't give you just one answer. If I can give you one answer, it's that my own children, and of, of which I have, you know, a stepdaughter, two daughters and a son and their partners, they know that the sky's the limit. If, if I can give one thing to my family and to my colleagues and to my friends, it's the acknowledgement that our youth don't have to be limited in what they do. And I know my children feel that way and we talk about it. And I hope that that, if, if nothing else, that my career allows people to realize that, you know, they do not have to limit themselves. And from my perspective, I just want to say I've always appreciated the fact that you've said yes to invitations from <laughs> academic institutions and centers and that you have valued those types of interactions, whether it was at Queen's through the CIDP with Vice Canada or KCIS, uh, you've always answered that call. So thank you for, for doing that. And thank you very much, Chris, for coming on Battle Rhythm. I appreciate your candor. I really do. And I hope to cross paths with you again soon. Yeah, thanks, uh, Stephanie. It was a real uh, delight to be here today. I've got three things to watch for this week for the R&R segment. The first is not very restful, but I think would provide some perspective. The movie Restrepo, which is a documentary that covers one battle in the war. And it's a very, very tough battle in the mountains close to Pakistan that the Americans fought. And it provides, uh, I think, a perspective of how tough this thing was and how we put so many people in harm's way without necessarily a good plan. The second is a very, very different thing to watch, which is Shadows in the Cloud. It's a, I believe it's a Netflix movie. And it's, it's about a woman who is on a special mission and boards a bomber leaving, I think, Australia in the middle of World War II. And once she's on the plane and she's in the belly of the, the belly gunner position, she sees something outside the window. And, uh, it looks like some sort of monster or alien on the plane. And that's not the strangest part about the movie. It's not the strangest dynamics within the movie. It's not a great movie, but it's a distracting one. And that's definitely what we needed. And speaking of distractions, White Lotus was, was, was hot on HBO and however you can get it in Canada, Crave, I suppose. And it was a really interesting portrayal of, well, race and class at a, at a Hawaii resort. So you come for the beautiful views of Hawaii. You stay for the strange family and class dynamics. And it's, it was really engaging. You may not be rooting for many of the characters, but you'll be feeling badly for the, the hotel staff. But it's a, it's a really engrossing six ep five or six episodes. So those are my recommendations for this week. As always, if you aren't vaxxed, get vaxxed. Wear your masks indoors these days because Delta is nasty. And good luck with everything. Take care. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments. And so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS or email them to CDSN.RCDS at Outlook.com. Thank you.